this dream, she doesn't accept it. It has to be said, see, that's our madhab, the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, it's a madhab. If I'm saving for my children's college, their fathers, on one side, for the past hundred years, the evangelists and I go sit in a gathering and you all know this. One of the greatest events within the Islamic history is the day of Badr. The battle of Badr which took place in the outskirts of the city of Medina. Two years after the Hijrah of Rasulullah where 313 Muslim men with very few armors, a couple of swords, a bunch of sticks on the 17th of Ramadan went to face an army of 1,000 Meccans. 1,000 sword fighters of Quraysh that were decked out in armors. Every single one of them was carrying a sword and sitting on the finest of horses. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the battle of Badr, He praises the Muslim community on numerous occasions. Once you come across the event of Badr within the Holy Quran, you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the extreme confidence of the Muslim community. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the extreme sabr and patience of the Muslim community. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises their extreme tawakkul on the day of Badr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises their unity on the day of Badr. And Allah says it was due to your pure intentions, your steadfastness, your devotion. It is due to that that I delivered you with victory on the day of Badr, even though you were outnumbered. Even though prior to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam engaging in this battle, he seek the advice of several of the companions. And he says to them, you know what we have. We have a bunch of swords and a couple of shields and two or three horses. And we're going to go and face the army of Quraysh. Now, this was an army of 1,000 men that were protecting the business of Quraysh, the business envoy of Quraysh. So all the assets of the Meccans were at stake there. So you better believe they had their best of protection escorting this movement. And Rasulullah asked his companions, we want to intercept them. Take from them that which they took away from us. And the companions, some of them, they stood and they said, 
يا رسول الله إنها قريش They are Quraysh Nobody dares to stand up to Quraysh They rule the Arabian Peninsula We are outnumbered folks And another group of companions They said يا رسول الله We submit to you We are submissive Soldiers at your service You tell us to go and face Quraysh We face Quraysh You tell us to Walk in the midst of fire with you We will follow you Ya Rasulullah We will never question you And there is one area Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Praises the Muslim community On the day of Badr like no other Chapter 48, chapter 8, I apologize, Surah Al-Anfal, verse number 41. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there says, The day of Badr was yawm al-furqan, yawm ajtama' yawm al-taqal, jam'an. It was the day of differentiation, distinction. When the two groups met. Why is it that when those two groups met, this day in Islamic history until today has been recognized as the day of distinction? Day of differentiation. Why? Because when Rasulullah came up with his army to face Quraysh, Those Muslims, they looked at Quraysh, they looked at the Meccan army, and there who did they find? They found their neighbors. They found their cousins. They found their uncles. They found their children. They found their siblings and their brothers. They found their fathers. On one side, The Muslims, the believers, and on one side their family. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam himself faced his family members on the day of Furqan. So Allah says, there your iman was truly tested. On that day, it's the day of distinction of the mu'mineen from those who left the battlefield. Because there he found his cousin and he found his father and he found his uncle and he found his neighbor. What am I doing here? And the rest of them that know, they remain steadfast. They chose to be part of the obedient soldiers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They submitted to Allah and they submitted to Rasulullah. So Allah calls this day the day of distinction. The day of obedience. Then in the same ayah that I began my lecture with, Allah says to the Muslims, if you believe, if you have the same faith, and if you have the same iman, like the day that you were in Badr, look at the beauty of the Qur'an. Look at how the Qur'an wants to deliver this message to them. It says, remember that day? When you're at the peak of your 
piety and righteousness and obedience, if you still carry that iman, if you still carry that obedience, that know that khums is wajib onto every single one of you. In kuntum tu'minuna billahi wa rasulihi. If you were to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger, just like the day of Furqan, then know that if you were to acquire anything, فَأَنَّ لِلَّهِ خُمُسَهُ وَلِلرَّسُولِ وَلِذِ الْقُرْبَى وَالْيَتَامَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ And tonight, while I'm going to speak of khums, I'm not going to focus on the difference between the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt and other madhab when it comes to khums because other madhab they tell you khums belongs to the battlefield of the Muslims and non-Muslims engage in a battle the booties of war then are divided into khums 20% of it goes to Allah, Rasulullah Dhil Qurba, Yatama, Masakin the poor, the needy, the kinship, the prophet, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, the Shia have unanimously agreed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not make an distinction here. He's telling us if you have the same iman that you had on the day of Badr, but he's not speaking of the fact that khums only belongs to the booties of war. I'm not here to discuss this difference. And I'm not here to discuss the fiqh of khums. Meaning what? Meaning if I have a mortgage, do I have to pay khums? If I'm still making car payments, do I deduct that from my khums? If I, for example, I am saving to buy a home, do I still have to pay khums? If I'm saving for my children's college, do I have to pay khums? If I have an ill child, and this child has certain expenses, do I deduct that from my khums? I'm not here to discuss that. But I'm here to discuss an extremely important and crucial discussion surrounding khums. A discussion that has made many people no longer pay khums. Altogether, they don't pay khums anymore. Furthermore, they have doubts in the actual existence of khums, in the actual obligation of khums. Some of them are going around believing that khums is something that was created and manufactured by scholars in the Hawza so that they can become wealthy and rich and pay their bills. And it's a myth. And when it comes to Ramadan and Muharram, we always will come across individuals. We'll hear them, we see them. And they'll tell you, if you don't pay your khums to this specific marja', to a specific marja', if you don't pay your khums to him, then your khums is not accepted. Your khums is batil. And if your khums is batil, then a portion of your wealth 
does not belong to you. It belongs to Allah. It belongs to the orphans. It belongs to the poor. And with that wealth, you go and you purchase clothing. And then with that, you purchase your food. That's all haram. You conduct your salah. Your salah is batil. You go to hajj. Your hajj is batil. So basically, you end up in hell. To sum it up. Is this a true statement or is this a myth? Is this an accurate statement or is this a myth? That's what we are here to address this evening. And let me tell you, if Khums is mentioned in the Quran and then it's one of the pillars of the madhab, and we, the followers of Ahl al-Bayt, unanimously believe in the existence of Khums, then why is it that we don't talk about it? Why is it that we cannot have an intellectual debate on this matter? Why is this a taboo? It's a forbidden discussion. And you say, every single day people are questioning their religion. Every single day people are questioning their religious institution. Every single day people are stopping to pay their khums. If you are 15 and 16 years old and you have an income, you have to start taking out your khums. Why is it that people are not, no longer taking out their khums? Why is it that young professionals, their CEOs of companies, is driving a $200,000 vehicle but he's not paying khums? Why is it that we're not addressing those topics? <clears throat> and the answer is, well, it's a sensitive topic. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to step on red lines and boundaries. This is a dangerous zone we don't want to get into. And I tell you, Wallah, brothers and sisters. Wallah. And I am sitting on the member of Imam Al-Hussein. Go ask any visiting scholar, any visiting alim. Tell him. Every community that you visit, what is their number one concern? Their number one concern. They ask, what happens to our khums? How come we don't know what goes on with khums? Why is it that I have to take out khums, for example, from Los Angeles, from New York, from London, from Sydney, from Melbourne, and send it to overseas? Why is it that khums is collected by relatives of the ulama and controlled by relatives of the ulama. Those are questions people talk about every single day. Even though we may pretend, no, this is not an important topic. It is the most important topic. And it's a topic that needs to be addressed and it needs to be discussed and there needs to be intellectual debate. There needs to be discussion, just like we discuss salah, and just like we discuss hajj, and just like we discuss marriage, and just like we discuss every other opinion, and every other topic, this is also a topic that needs to be addressed. Why are we shying away from the most important topics? Isn't this the philosophy of having ijtihad, and having a, a madhab that is alive today? We say that our madhab, the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, it's a madhab that is alive. 
it updates itself. It's not a, a dead madhab. That is why we have hundreds and thousands of mujtahids in Najaf and in Qom and in Karbala and different cities discussing ilm on daily basis. And I tell you one thing, those topics are not taboos in the Hawza. Even the existence of God isn't. Every single day those topics are being discussed. They are being debated. Scholars are writing and doing research on this on daily basis. But when, does it, when do they become taboos? They become taboos when you get out of the Hawza. When you get out of these academic institutions. And the disconnect between the academic institution, the seminarian institution and the people. Things like having to follow one marja' that's a taboo. Things like having to give your khums to one specific marja' that's a taboo because many people will not like such discussions. But those discussions are being conducted every single day at the highest levels of the seminary. The majalis of Imam Hussein, last time I checked, were meant to stimulate our minds. Were meant to allow us, the community, to go and think and make decisions for ourselves. I am so sorry to say this, but we're not meant to just have sheeps in our community. They just follow along. You know, some people, they are used to becoming so dependent on scholars, on the house, so dependent. We have taken the independence from our community where they're no longer allowed to think. And everything within Islam, they have to do taqlid. That's it. And that's become an excuse for people not to read, not to do research. Whatever we do, we ask questions. And we want a yes and no answer. And we believe that those scholars are meant to give solution to every one of our problems, every one of our concerns. <laughs> you know, I've said this in other places. Once I got an email from an individual saying, I've seen a dream. And then there was about four pages that I skipped. Obviously, I didn't read. And then in the end, it said, by the way, I follow Sayyid Sistani, so interpret my dream according to Sayyid Sistani. So meaning I have to send this dream to Sayyid Sistani, who's sitting there in Najaf. He would read this four-page email and tell her what her, her dream means. And if another alim were to interpret this dream, she doesn't accept it. It has to be Sayyid Sistani himself. This is what our community has become. And the majalis of Imam al-Hussein, brothers and sisters, they're either going to stimulate the minds of people, they're either going to take them towards research and understanding, or it's just going to be a cultural activity. An activity where people gather, there is a small talk, and the rest of it is eulogy and crying for Imam al-Hussein. But we get out, with nothing to achieve. We haven't achieved anything. Yes, it's mustahab to cry for Imam al-Hussein, but with an understanding, I have to know why I'm crying for Imam al-Hussein. 
When I leave the majlis and I go sit in a gathering and you all know this, you all know this, that in every single gathering of religious people, khums is being discussed. And the exploitation of khums is being discussed. And the expenditure of khums is being discussed. Therefore, I will examine this topic in the following steps. And I want you to pay attention. Number one, we will discuss the three opinions. Three opinions of scholars on who owns Khums. Who is the owner of Khums? Who does it belong to? In the time of occultation. In the time of the ghaybah of the imam. While the imam is no longer with us. Yes, if we want to talk about Khums, the originality of Khums, the application of Khums, the Khums in the time of the 11 Imams, and then we start discussing the Khums in the time of the 12th Imam. This needs an entire series by itself, 10 nights. Therefore, we're going to discuss the opinion of the ulama on who the Khums belongs to in the time of the occultation. Who is the owner of those Khums? We have three opinions here. And then we will discuss the four opinions of scholars from the beginning of occultation, Zaman al-Ghayba, al-Kubra, until 100 years ago. So for over a thousand years, the Shia had four opinions. And then for the past 100 years, they've had three opinions. So altogether, we will look at seven opinions, and then three opinions prior to that on who owns Khums. So we have ten things to talk about tonight. The first opinion of our scholars on who owns Khums and the most popular of opinion until today, from the beginning of the occultation until today, is that the Khums is the belonging of the Imam. He owns the Khums. It's him. It's his money. It's his wealth. It's a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the 12 Imams. So the Khums... At the time of Amir al-Mu'mineen, belonged to him. It was his. At the time of Imam Hussein, it belonged to him. It was his. At the time of Imam al-Ridha, it belonged to him. It was his. At the time of the 11th Imam, it belonged to him. It was his money. And at the time of the 12th Imam, similarly, it belongs to him. Number two, they say no. The Khums belongs to the Shia community. The community of Shia, however, who is it controlled by? Who is it managed by? It's managed by the Imam. So it's managed by Imam al-Ridha at his time. It's managed by Imam al-Jawad at his time. It's managed by Imam Hassan al-Askari at his time. And it's managed by Imam al-Mahdi at his time. But what happens in occultation? This is what we're going to talk about. He's not around. Number three, the third opinion tells you, that the Khums does not belong to the Imam, and it does not belong to the Shia community. It belongs to Baytul Mal, the Islamic treasury. Where is the Islamic treasury? The Islamic treasury belongs to the Islamic leadership. Whoever is the leader of the, of the community at that time, if there is an Islamic state, or there is a central leadership for the Shia community, they have a Baytul Mal, the treasury. Khums belong to that treasury 
and it's spent in the way that any other treasury would spend the money. Those are the three opinions on the ownership of Khums. Now when we discuss every single opinion, we'll ask ourselves, in accordance to which opinion now do I have to pay my Khums to the Islamic State? Do I have to pay it to the Shia community or do I have to pay it to the Imam directly himself? And then who takes the position of this Imam who takes the leadership community when the Imam is in occultation? Is it the state? Is it the community? Or is it the wakil of the Imam, the representative of the Imam? This is what we're going to try to answer in the seven upcoming opinions. First one, first opinion of the Shia, right after the occultation of the 12th Imam, the second occultation. Listen to this. You will come across this discussion, whether it's today or years from now, you will come across this discussion. There are hadiths from the Imams, several of the Imams, including the Imam al-Mahdi himself, that says of a notion called al-Ibaha. What is al-Ibaha? You're excused from Khums. So at the time of occultation, you're excused from Khums. That's Khums is wajib. But we've given you permission, you're excused. You don't need to pay it. We have hadiths. You can go and Google it. You can search them. Ahadith al-Ibaha or Ibahat al-Khums. Go to the discussion of every fuqaha. Whether it's Sahib al-Jawahir, whether it's a Sayyid al-Khu'i, whether it's every single one of our ulama, go and read. They have a section called section Ibahat al-Khums. And they have discussed this. This needs a lecture by itself, examining every hadith of Ibahat al-Khums, which ones are valid, which ones are invalid, and the opinion of scholars. So this was, chronologically, this was the first opinion. Second, they said, no. How can it be that, you know, we're not going to pay Khums? So they started burying the Khums. Yeah, digging graves, burying the Khums in there. Well, why? Because they thought the Imam, several years, two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, he's going to come back. And when he comes back, we have hadiths that Allah will dig up the treasures of the earth for Imam al-Mahdi. Whatever treasures there are within the earth, Allah will enable Imam al-Mahdi to use them. So we bury them, Imam al-Mahdi, when he comes, Allah enables him to use them. But what was happening? Currencies were being expired. You know, at times, the enemies of the followers of Ahlul Bayt were going and finding those buried khums, using it against the Shia themselves. And you better believe, you know, people had an eye on those rich people burying their khums. He goes and buries the khums, the next day someone goes and digs this grave and takes out the khums. So they said, we have to stop this. Third opinion is al-wasaya or al-wasaya so one is al-ibaha second is al-dafn and third is al-wasaya again this is a discussion in every fiqhi book where today if you're writing your will you're writing your wasiya you're at an age where you're talking about your will you have, for example, $50,000 of khums, 50,000 golden dinars of khums, 
100,000 dirhams of khums, depending on where you live, you say, well, I didn't meet the imam, I didn't see the imam, the imam is still in occultation, so I pass this in my generation, I've passed this to my son, he writes it in his will, he passes it to his son, if his son didn't have somebody who he trusts, he passes it to another mu'min, this mu'min passes it to another mu'min, and was being passed around in a form of wasiyah, will, until the imam would reappear. But obviously, they realized that, look, this money is going to waste. Again, currencies are going to waste. And then, you know, when there is a huge sum, you know, with $100, 150000 200000 maybe, but when you, accum you accumulate about $5 million, now it's very difficult to pass this amana down. So some money was being lost there, and people were saying, well, we need to change this method. So they said, they came up with the fourth opinion. Now, this is up until 100 years ago. Keep this in mind. Fourth opinion. They said that since half the khums belongs to the Sayyids, this portion belongs to the Imam. If the Imam were to be alive and amongst us today, he would spend it in the way that he wishes. But if he's not around, we have to spend it in the way that makes him happy. What way is that? Obviously, if we give the money to the relatives of the imam, he will be happy. Imagine you have somebody who you owe him $200. You, ha you don't have access to him. He's upset with you. So you say, look, I can't find you, but I'm going to give it to your son. It's better than not giving it to anybody. I'm going to give it to your father. I'm going to give it to your mom. I'm going to give it to your sister. I'm going to give it to your cousin. They said, this, belong, this, this will please the imam. There's, they are his cousins. They are his relatives. They are his flesh and blood. So let us shift all the khums and give it to the who? Sayyids. For a thousand years, this was the opinion of the Shia. Are you telling me that they did khums wrong? Allah didn't accept their khums. Therefore, their salah was invalid. Their hajj was invalid. Their prayer was invalid. Their dua was not being accepted. Then let us come to the three opinions. The most popular opinions, by the way. Because until today, there are ulama that will tell you, go and bury the khums. Until today. Some of them. Very few. Some of them will tell you, do the wasaya. Some of them will tell you of the ibaha. But the most popular of opinions are the following three. Number one, they tell you that the khums belongs to the Shia community. How do we know that? We know that because of the way that the Ahl al-Bayt spend this khums. Who did they spend it on themselves? Were they buying themselves mansions and homes and cattle and horses and Going on vacations? No. They were selling the debts of the Shia, helping them buy homes, taking them out of prison sometimes. Um, in terms of education, in terms, in ter in terms of uh, health care. And until today, we should do the same thing. So if they need schools, we build schools. If they need hospitals, we'll build hospitals. If they need roads, we'll build roads. If they need loans, we'll give them loans. If they need an educational system, we'll give them an educational system. Whatever it is, the money belongs to them. 
However, it needs to be managed. Who is it managed by? It is managed by the person who takes the leadership position after the imam. Who is that person? It is the marja, correct? But here there's a fine line. It's almost invisible. What is the fine line? It's correct. That the marja is the representative of the imam. But if the money belongs to the imam himself, it belongs to the imam himself, and now I am spending the money on the Shia community and it belongs to the Shia community, then if I am spending the money on the Shia community because it belongs to the Shia community and it does not belong to the Imam, I don't need to ask anybody. Because it belongs to the Shia, I am taking it from my pocket and giving it to them. It doesn't belong to the Imam. The Imam was managing it. However, they have responded. Yes, the Imam was managing it. This was his role. And today, the same role applies to the wakil and the representative of the Imam. This is something for us to understand. Number two, they say the opinion is that this money in the time of the occultation is what's referred to as majhul al-malik. What is majhul al-malik? An unknown owner. It's like you found this money somewhere. What do you do with it? Islamically, what do you do with money that you found? The ulama have stated you pay sadaqah on behalf of the owner. And we have hadiths. We have many hadiths that tell you if you found some money somewhere and you don't know who it belongs to, you look for its owner. You won't find the owner. You keep looking. You won't find him. You won't find his relatives. You don't know who he is. There is absolutely no trace of him. You pay sadaqah on his behalf. You can't just take this money and say, well, I, I looked for the guy for two years. I didn't find him. Now it belongs to me. No. You pay that as sadaqah, charity on his behalf. Now, if I want to pay charity on behalf of the imam because the money belongs to the imam, just go and pay charity on his behalf. They, have, they tell you that no. If you want to pay charity on his behalf, it is the alim who knows best. Who knows best how this charity should be spent. Third opinion. Third opinion will tell you that this money needs to be spent to seek the pleasure of the imam. Imam is not with us, but he's not Majhul al-Malik. We know who the Malik is. He is Muhammad al-Mahdi, the son of Hassan al-Askari. We know who he is. He's not an unknown owner. We know the owner. But we don't have access to him, so we spend it in the manner which pleases him. What is the manner which pleases him? Some of the ulama here have said, one area that pleases him is to give this to the seminaries, to the hawzat, to the hawz al-almiyah. Why? Because it is the seminary that dispenses knowledge to the people. It is the seminary that ensures the independence of the Shia community. If the seminary becomes impoverished, it has no money, it needs to depend on people. What do I mean? I'll start depending on governments. I'll start depending on kings. I'll start depending on political systems. And once the marja' is dependent, then his message is controlled. Once the alim 
is controlled by an entity, whether it's a political entity, whether it is a, a kingdom, whether it is by... Then the opinion will change. He's no longer free to speak what he wants to speak. So to keep the Hawza independent, this money must come to the treasury of the Hawza. And the Hawza then ensures the independence of the Madhab. This is one area. And the rest of the areas is the needs of the Shia community. And this is how it ought to be spent. So those are the seven opinions. Now I want to highlight one of the most important statements by one of the most thought-provoking scholars of our time, Sheikh Murtaba al-Mutahhari, who passed away, obviously, he's not, but he's a contemporary. Listen to what he says. And I want you to go and think about this on your own. Mutahhari says, that when you examine scholars, and specifically the issue of Khums, and how the opinions have varied so much, and the evolution of opinions through time, you can conclude one thing. And that, you know, when we look for a mujtahid, they tell you you have to look at the person who is a'lam. You have to look at all those, all those things that you all know. But Mutahari says, let's add one more item. The surroundings of this alim also pressures his opinion. It's like peer pressure, something like peer pressure. But let's call it the pressure of our surroundings and our environment. That's why when you find ulama who are politically motivated, they tell you this khums has to belong to an Islamic state. Those who know they have charitable activities, they tell you it belongs to the Shia community and let's build hospitals, let's build schools. So the variety of opinions, those who literally had nothing, they tell you go and bury the khums. Those who are sitting there, not wanting to do anything and take responsibility, tell you bury this homes or inherit this homes one after another until the imam, inshallah, five years, six years from now, he'll reappear. But until now, we don't have to do anything. We'll just sit at home. We don't have to build schools. We don't have to build hospitals. We don't have to... So Mutahari says, look at the surroundings of those ulama, the environment that they live, the... Pressure of that time frame where they lived in and you realize that this has had an influence on how they perceived the Islamic laws and how they extracted the fatwas. And that is why I want to say this following statement. Today, if you come to the West, whether it's Sydney, whether it's Los Angeles, whether it's New York, whether it's London, wherever you may be, the, the western part of the world, I tell you, brothers and sisters, that our needs and the needs of the Shia community is different than the needs of the Shia community in Najaf and in Qom and in Beirut and in the Dahiya and in Syria and in Saudiya and in... It's different. What's the role of the masjid there? The role of the masjid is you go and you pray there. That's it. And then you leave. The role of some of the masajid in the Middle East, it's a public bathroom. There aren't enough public bathrooms, but if you find a masjid, there is a bathroom there. Or, when they have vigil, somebody passes away, you just go into the masjid and you leave. That's it. But what is the role of an Islamic institution in the West? 
that is the headquarters of the community. <clears throat> it is what motivates the community. It is what changes the community. It is what drives the community. <clears throat> the role is much different. There, getting involved with politicians is not something that is needed and required because they're one of you. But here, getting politically involved is a necessity for the Shia community because we are a minority. Our needs are different. There, you don't need to have a full-time Shi'i Islamic school with the highest standards of academic achievements. Every kid is Shi'a there. But here, you need a school, a full-time school that does what? That sends your kids to the worst colleges or the best colleges? That makes them the most successful of people or the most failure of people? And that does not come for free. This is one of the needs of the community. We need media. Today we have one or two or a very few Shi'i English satellite channels. And they're going bankrupt, begging for money every day. Why? Our needs are different. So what I'm trying to say is, once we look at our needs here, and I'm not undermining the role of the scholars and the independence of the Hawza, there needs to be a balance between the needs of the Muslim community and the Shia community in the West and keeping the independence of the Hawza. Let me say this. Not every single dime and dollar should be going overseas. In fact, I highly doubt any of it needs to be, needs to be going, going overseas. It needs to be spent in your community and on your community and on your prosperity. But what, what does this need? This needs a vision. This needs a vision that explains and understands the needs of our community in the West. Today, our community, believe me, does not need every 40 people they get in a fight with their Husseiniya, they go and open another one. 177 Husseiniyat in Sydney. And every one of them, Wallah, if you don't follow this marja, we will this and that. If you don't belong to this political group, you're this and that. This is what we've learned. And Khums is being spent on such pity, useless things that are dividing the community on a daily basis. Habibi, before you talk to me about those things, go read the Quran from cover to cover one time. Go read the full history of Islam. One encyclopedia on Islamic history. Before you... Go read the biography of every imam. Fourteen books. Go read them. We're literally ignorant. We don't know anything. But we think, mashallah. We all are scholars and ulama and mujtahids and fuqaha and we all give fatwas every single day. Why? Why? 
Because unfortunately, the institutions are not motivating, motivating, motivating the community <clears throat> to seek real knowledge. I said a couple of days ago, we don't have a single institution that belongs to the Quran, Ulum al Quran, Darul Quran. How many seminaries do we have? Full time English seminaries in the West. Look at the other denominations and religions. Look at the Jews. How many seminaries do they have? How many colleges do they have? Look at the Christians. How many seminaries and colleges do they have? Look at our brothers and other madahab and schools of thought. How, how many seminaries and schools do they have? But no, we leave ilm and we leave knowledge and we leave everything else and we waste our time with those pity little discussions. And I tell you, with this I conclude, that there is one area that the Khums needs to bail out the Muslim community living in the West, and it's been ignored. There needs to be a complete funding for this, out of Khums. And this is embedded in the ayat, and especially the riwayat of Ahl al-Bayt and the biography of Ahl al-Bayt. And where is that? That is to win over the members of the community that have left. Khalas, he's gone. Don't tell me, well, Sayyidna, he's gone. Khalas, how are we going to bring back this guy? He's, khalas. No. Part of Khums is meant to win those people over, bring them back. How? We have to sit down and think about that. Many of them are no longer on good terms with the Islamic centers that we have and the scholars that we have and the speak many of them have left the religion of Islam we must be able to bring them back and guide them and illuminate their path we need to come up with institutions and organizations that do that for them you know why? because this guy once upon a time he was part of a community or his father or his mother and the community was what? Give, 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 give. When it came to take, when this guy wanted to take, he has a problem. We don't have, what are we going to offer for you? We have nothing to give you. You want solution for your depression? We don't have. You want money to pay your bills? Now you've gone bankrupt? We don't have. Your son wants to go to school? Well, we don't have. People leave. They'll never come back. It is our duty to bring them back. And this is the spirit of this evening. The spirit of one of the greatest companions of Imam Al-Hussein. Who was at the borderline of heaven and hell. Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi. Ridwanullahi alayhi. Hur. Received a letter from Umar ibn Sa'ad, intercept him, hold him, until I will tell you what to do. He didn't know that there was another army of 30,000 men coming. So Hur intercepted Imam al-Hussein, but he was very respectful. They say that when he intercepted Imam al-Hussein and he told him, Ya Aba Abdullah, you need to stay here. Imam al-Hussein says to him, Man ant? Imam al-Hussein knew him, by the way. 
But look, look, look at the two, the two times that Imam Al-Hussein asks Hur who he is. He says, Ana Hur, Ibn Rasulullah. He says, Thakalatka ummuka ya hur. May your mother mourn you. May your mother mourn you, ya hur. Do you know who I am? I am the grandson of Rasulullah. They say, Hur, he put his head down. He says, Ya Aba Abdullah, you mentioned my mother. I would not allow anybody to mention my mother. The least is I would also mention your mother in vain. But I can't do that. Your mother is Fatima to Zahra. So he knew Hussein. He knew the position of Hussein. He, he carried the love of Hussein. But he intercepted his cap. And what happened? On the 9th of Muharram, the eve of the 10th, the clock was ticking. And Hur realized tomorrow Hussein will be annihilated. He will be killed. So he com comes out and this is exactly what he says. He says, أُخَيِّرُ نَفْسِي بَيْنَ الْجَنَّةِ وَالنَّارِ Let me ask myself, do I want Jannah or do I want Jahannam? وَلَا أَخْتَارُ وَاللَّهِ فَوْقَ الْجَنَّةِ شَيْئًا I will never choose anything above Jannah. So he went with several of his companions and they say his children. They, he went and he stood in front of the tent of Hussein ibn Ali. And he says, Assalamu alayka ya Aba Abdullah. Imam al-Hussein from the tent, he says, Wa alayka salamu man ant. This time, Hur is so ashamed. He's so devastated, he does not mention his name. He says, Ya ibn Rasulullah, He says his crime. He says, I am regretful, Ya ibn Rasulullah. I know what I have done. Ya ibn Rasulullah, Is there any way for me to seek forgiveness, Ya ibn Rasulullah? And what does Imam al-Hussein tell him? Tubtab Allahu alayk. Tubtab Allahu alayk. They say that after the Salat al-Fajr, as soon as Imam al-Hussein prayed Salat al-Fajr, Hur sat on the back of his horse. Imam al-Hussein says to him, Hur, why are you in, a, in such a rush? He says, Ya ibn Rasulullah, Ana laka raakiban afdalu min an akuna laka rajila. Ya Aba Abdullah, me sitting on my horse, it is better for you than if I were to be off my horse. I, I, cannot, I cannot wait anymore. I have to wash my sin away. I have to cleanse myself. I have to give myself for Sabilillah. Look at how he was changed by the barakah and the blessings of Imam al-Hussein. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.